Dr. William Berry is the chief historian at NASA, a position he has held since September 2010. Dr. Berry visited CTI this spring for a symposium, and I had the chance to record this conversation with him, joined by CTI member Susan Schneider. To me, it's very useful to have these sorts of conversations uh, where we can you know, mine uh, the, the centuries of thinking about these questions and, uh, and try and apply them to current questions. Prior to becoming the chief historian, Dr. Berry served as the NASA European representative at the United States Embassy in Paris and at NASA headquarters as a senior international program specialist in the Office of External Relations. Dr. Berry joined NASA in 2001 after retiring from a 22-year career in the United States Air Force. While serving the Air Force, he alternated between flying assignments in the KC-135 air refueling tanker and duty on the faculty of the Department of Political Science at the United States Air Force Academy. A graduate with honors of the United States Air Force Academy, Dr. Berry also holds a master's degree from Stanford and a doctorate from Oxford University. His dissertation, The Missile Design Bureau and Soviet Manned Space Policy 1953 to 1970, won the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics History Manuscript Award in 2000. Thanks for joining the conversation. So I'm here with Bill Berry, who is the chief historian at NASA, and also with Susan Schneider, who's one of the members at CTI and who's been on the podcast a few times now. So it's good to have you, you back in here too. And we're just getting near the end of our spring symposium. It's been a couple days, so it's kind of good for, I think, a few of us to gather. We can kind of pick up on loose ends where we haven't points you wanted to make that you didn't have a chance to talk about and also get to know Bill a bit more, uh, Dr. Bill Berry. So if you could start out, just talk a bit about your own work as a chief historian. What exactly, you know, does that mean that you do, and uh, how did you get to that point? Sure, Josh. Well, um, let's deal with the question of how did I wind up here. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not a path that I would recommend to anybody because it was completely random. Um, but uh, I uh, uh, served in the military for 22 years in the Air Force and flew airplanes and taught at the Air Force Academy, kind of alternating career there. Uh, when I retired, I had some uh, background in both international relations and uh, uh, the Soviet space program. I did my doctoral dissertation on uh, basically a political history of the early Soviet space program. And uh, it just so happened that NASA was looking for someone to work in their international relations office. Uh, since I was four years old, I wanted to work for NASA, and so it was a long, delayed dream, so I, I took the job. Um, and so I did that for about nine years doing international relations work for the agency and the historian's job opened up uh, about the time I was ready to move to something else and, uh, and I slid, slid over to the historian's job. Um, what do I do on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, as the chief historian, I'm responsible for the history program across the agency. Uh, so there's a lot of administrative bureaucratic things, you know, performance reports and writing policy directives and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but I also help manage our, um, uh, our publications program. We put out you know, on average four or five things a year, uh, you know, print um, items, you know, books and uh, small monographs, you know, a combination of those things. Who are you trying to reach with that? Who's your audience? Um, General have, public or more? As with much of our other work, is there's a multiple audience approach. Mm -hmm. you know, we, we look at both internal information, trying for example, some of the books that are just sort of uh, uh, a straightforward history of what happened in some 
program or project. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's sort of aimed at an internal audience for them, but also to the public as well. It's, that's one of the mandates of the, the Space Act mm-hmm. that created NASA in 1958 is that we're supposed to communicate with the public uh, about what we're doing so that they know what they're getting for the tax dollars. So I, we do the publication program. Um, I'll, there's some internal communications efforts where we're, we're telling people about what happened in NASA history in the past um, and uh, answering questions from within the agency about, uh, you know, didn't we do a project like this 40 years ago? <laughs> what did we find out? Uh, so we'll take that information out for people. Um, but also uh, we have, a, we, you know, deal with a lot of those sort of questions from the public. We get, get lots of questions from the public about, uh, um, you know, all kinds of questions. I talk to reporters quite a bit to, you know, and answer questions, mm-hmm. uh, do public outreach functions. Um, and, um, uh, you know, and part of what we do too is there's an archival program that falls within the history program where we collect uh, uh, basically reference collections because officially all the government records go to the National Archives. As those things head off to the National Archives, we skim off things that we think will be of interest for immediate reference in the future so that we don't have to go to the National Archives to find those things. So we have a group of archivists who work for us to do that, and that falls under, under the history program. So there's a, a variety of things. Uh, every once in a while I get to do something fun like come up to CTI and, uh, and do the Spring Symposium. So uh, that's, that's great fun. So this morning we were talking about planetary protection, and uh, did you, were there any big points you wanted to make that you didn't have a chance to talk about this morning? And or what is your overall sort of sense that you've gotten uh, today? Well, there are a lot of questions about planetary protection that systematically I hadn't thought about, uh-huh. you know, the theological implications and the ethical implications. Um, we recently published a book, recently, probably three or four years ago, put out a book. Uh, on, it was a short history of the planetary protection program at NASA. And uh, one of the aspects of that book that I thought was most interesting was the fact that the planetary protection program was something that was being talked about, uh, as we found out this morning, in fact, it was back, back as early as before spaceflight began in 1958, you know, or at the very early stages of the of spaceflight, um, you know, first space probes being launched. Um, but there wasn't a lot of energy behind actively doing anything about planetary protection, either, you know, cleaning things that go out or worrying <laughs> about things that might come in. Um, until um, um, a fictional book came out, Michael Crichton's book, Andromeda Strain, which was made into a very compelling movie in the 60s, which frightened uh, a lot of people. <laughs> and then suddenly, then suddenly NASA had to come up with a, a way to quarantine the astronauts who were coming back from the moon really? and to protect the samples. Um, and uh, So it was actually that book and the film that, that made this happen. Well, uh, you know, the official answer, I suppose, is that, uh, that there were lots of good reasons to do it, but... Uh-huh. Uh, um, so there was, there was a kind of public outcry, or and, and particularly particularly in Washington among you know the Congress and other uh-huh. staff members who, who said, well, are, you know, why aren't we doing something about this? And, uh-huh. the, and the people who were worrying about those questions suddenly had some support to bring their approach to it to the fore. Uh, there's been talk about having, for example, a, what was called a lunar receiving laboratory built to protect the samples that came back from the moon, largely to protect them from contamination after they got here to Earth. So they could be studied effectively, and there wasn't a lot of support for funding for that sort of activity until um, after people began to think about uh, the threat of of uh, microbes that might be in those samples. So the upshot is, if NASA wants to do something, they just really need to hire a science fiction writer and put it out. <laughs> well, it, it's, science fiction has had a, a very big impact on uh, on things, and in lots of different ways. You know, back and forth on you know the 
things that appear in science fiction, and people say, well, that's a really good idea. Maybe we should build a tricorder. Yeah. Uh, and oh, so yeah. you have people working on things like that, or artificial intelligence, uh, things like, which I know, Susan, you're interested in. So uh, a lot of those things sort of come, they seed over from from fiction. Uh, and of course, it goes the other way as well, is you know, things that will come up scientifically, and then they'll, you know, they'll creep their way into fiction in various ways. I know you've got a whole book on science fiction and philosophy. Years right. ago, yeah, yeah, it keeps coming out new editions. Right. You know, the students like it. You know, science fiction's becoming science fact nowadays. So, what have you taken away so far in the last couple of days while we've been here? Well, I really enjoyed the discussion on planetary protection um, today. So, you know, I don't focus on that, and sometimes it's hard to really find the time to go on a reading excursion sure. on it. And it was fascinating. I mean. I like the connection of moral philosophy too, and you know what is it that we value. Um, and for me, you know, I'm kind of interested in this idea of um, whether we have any kind of a moral imperative if the universe turns out to not have life of seeding sentience. Um, you know, if you have an empty universe, one that's not stocked with life, um, I wonder what we do uh, in that context. You know, there are some people who are more skeptical about what we're going to find in the exoplanets, whether the, um, you know, we say they're habitable, but are they truly inhabited? So I'm interested in, you know, all kinds of scenarios as a philosopher, including the possibility that, sadly, we don't find life. And I wonder what we do with the universe in that context. I mean, we certainly don't have an obligation to protect anything in, in that, except ourselves. Yeah, did, did you? There was a podcast about a year or so ago where you talked to somebody about the theory about the filter and. Well, I think it was oh, Susan. it was probably me. It was Susan, yeah. Yeah, I hope there isn't a great filter, you know. But that whole Fermi paradox situation makes me wonder: where's all the intelligence, and could there be a filter um, somewhere? Yeah, it, it does. It does leave you to wonder about that, and then you know, of course, you know, there's the. One of the things that drove exploration in the you know, earlier human history, I think, was largely a religious drive to you know, ex- you know, expand and, and uh, proselytize and do things like that. So does that get carried off into space as well? You know, and do we occupy space because it's been given to us by God to do that? Uh, you know, that's an interesting moral or philosophical question that, that nobody's raised yet today. So uh, we'll see if that comes up. Uh, you know. Yeah, well, it seems like... Today we looked at values that could possibly underwrite what we're doing, and I think everybody in the room appreciates the fact that values themselves don't come from science, and that really is why it's important that scientists engage with work in the humanities as well to decide what the ethical justification is for the goals that they have. There's such a rich history of all of people answering these sorts of questions that, that you often don't think about as questions that, that, that deal with space exploration. but. But that uh, you know, underlie all those things are our assumptions about you know should we should we you know kill the Earth microbes on this thing before we send it up to Mars uh, on the chance that that it might infect Mars with with human life? Um, there's there's a philosophical question, and there are thinkers who have thought about these things back through the centuries. Most scientists and engineers aren't well read on those things to start with, and uh, and they don't sort of think in that mode. So it's to me, it's very useful to have these sorts of conversations. Uh, where we can, you know, mine uh, the, the centuries of thinking about these questions and uh, and try and apply them to current questions. So it's been it's, this has been a very stimulating discussion. In your work, how much are you related to the astrobiology side of NASA? I know you're working with you know, all of NASA in the history of the agency. Um, 
Not very much. You know, we, we, NASA's a pretty big organization mm -hmm. and uh, has many different aspects um, uh, that, of, you know, activity. And uh, <laughs> the history program is a pretty small program, so we're, we're pretty thinly stretched. So um, there are lots of things that, that, um, that we study that are driven by um, some particular uh, program, for example, if somebody in astrobiology said, why don't you write a history about whatever, um, you know, we, we might engage in that depending on circumstances and funding and those sorts of things. Um, but uh, there, are, there are a lot of those sorts of things out there. And so um, we haven't done a whole lot with astrobiology yet. How did it come about that NASA has a chief historian? Ah, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a really interesting story. It actually goes back to the very beginning. Um, there were historians in the government. Um, many of the history programs in the executive branch of the government started uh, about the early 1950s. There were some organizations that had historians before that, uh, State Department notably, um, because it was a congressional mandate that they, they do some history uh, a century or more ago. Um, but most of them actually started in, in the 50s, and the Department of Defense was told that you will have a history program because they found out as they were gearing up for the Korean War that a lot of what they learned in World War II had been already been forgotten five, oh. six years later. So the military and the Department of Defense has a fairly substantive uh, history program. Uh, as uh, NASA was being created in the early parts of 1958, um, uh, T. Keith Glennon, who, at the who had been a government official in various places and at the time was uh, the, the president of uh, uh, what's now Case Western Reserve University up in Cleveland, um, it was Case Institute of Technology at the time. Uh, Glennon uh, had a head of the head of his history department um, came to who's a, a history of science kind of guy, and uh, he went to him and said, "You know, Keith, you're going to be doing something really interesting here, and, and you really ought to have a historian." And the organization on which NASA was largely built, the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, had not had a history program before. Uh, so Glennon gets to Washington in 1958. Uh, within a year, by November of 1959, they'd hired uh, um, Gene Emmy, uh, who had been an Air Force historian. So he had experience with the DOD uh, history program. And he basically built the NASA history program on the model that he knew from, from his Air Force days. Uh, so the history program actually did NASA dates back to 1959, uh, from the very beginning, so, which, uh, which is a good thing. Well, thanks for your time. We've uh, our session is not is not over, so I've got to let you two go so we can get back in the room. But uh, thanks both of you, um, Bill Berry and Susan Schneider, for being on the podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks.